Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Podcast. To find out more about the Worklife Hub and to listen to other episodes, please go to www.worklifehub.com. Welcome to another episode of the Worklife Hub Podcast. I am your host, Agnes Uheretsky. If this is the first time that you are tuning in, let me just say a few words about this podcast. We speak to authors, researchers, business thought leaders, for them to share their knowledge and insight on work-life balance, leadership, culture change and organizational development. In our work at the Worklife Hub, we help companies reform their workplace to create a culture that embraces diversity and work-life balance. We are passionate about building vibrant and engaging workplaces that are great for employees and customers. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do this via Twitter at WorkLifeHub, on our LinkedIn page or on our website. We're always happy to hear how you like the podcast or any other ideas that you would like to share with us. And now, on with the show. I have the huge pleasure of welcoming Whitney Johnson here uh, today to join us on the Work Life Up podcast. Hello, Whitney. Hello, I'm happy to be here. Well, thank you very much for joining. So Whitney Johnson is the author of the critically acclaimed Disrupt Yourself, Putting the Power of Disruptive Innovation to Work. She's also a former Wall Street award-winning analyst. And in 2015, she was inducted into Thinkers 50 as one of the world's leading management thinkers. Um, so thank you very much for being here. And, and your book is out was out on the 6th of October, 2015. And we're going to be mainly speaking about that. Whitney, would you maybe take us through your journey, how you discovered self-disruption and how you have applied that to your life? Absolutely. Um, well, I, I guess the story around understanding and how I'm thinking about disrupting yourself begins in really in 2005, so roughly a decade ago. And at that point, I was um, still on Wall Street covering equities in Latin America. I was responsible for uh, stocks like America Mobile, which is now the fourth largest cellular company in the world. And one day I said to a dear friend of mine that I was going to quit my job. Um, she was concerned about my sanity. She really, truly thought that I had lost my <laughs> mind um, because I was absolutely at the top of my game. I had just gone to Mexico. I'd been at an investor day with Carlos Slim, who is the controlling shareholder of America Mobile and one of the world's richest people. And he was quoting my research. He was referring to me as La Whitney. I had institutions like Fidelity mm. that were um, you know, asking for my financial models. And when I would upgrade or downgrade a stock, it would typically move several percentage points. So here I was at the top of my game and getting to this place had been very hard won. I had moved to New York 15 years earlier uh, with my husband so he could get his PhD. I was terrified I would not have gone to New York. And um, and I, uh, I actually for the first week I wouldn't even go out of my apartment um, by myself. And But eventually, you know, we had to put food on the table. Um, it was my job to do that. And so because I was a music major, I decided I wanted to work on Wall Street. Um, but because I had no training in finance and no connections whatsoever on Wall Street and clearly no confidence, I started as a secretary. So really 
the lowest rung of the ladder. Well, it was an exciting time to be on Wall Street. Um, it was the era of liars poker and bonfire of the vanities and working girl. And so I realized I didn't just want to work on Wall Street. I wanted to work on Wall Street. So I worked my way up. I took business courses at night. I moved from secretary to investment banker, eventually became an equity analyst, and then co-founded an investment firm with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School. What's interesting about all this is that when I walked onto Wall Street through the secretarial side door, and then again when I walked off of Wall Street to become an entrepreneur in 2005, in both instances, I was a disruptor. I know that this is your third book, and uh, as, as I've uh, seen you also say in, in one of your interviews that this was also another dream of yours to, to write a book. Um, it, it got really raving reviews. Um, we ourselves at the Work Life Hub were also a lean enterprise, a lean startup. And so Eric Ries, he wrote about the book that it's um, playing it safe is not safe in today's fast paced marketplace. Disrupt Yourself is a must read for anyone looking to stand out from the crowd and pursue innovation in our highly uncertain business climate. And I think that some of the your your um, advice and some of the points in your book are, are quite counterintuitive, right? Also, as you just explained, when you're on top of your career in a stable job with a stable income, why would you just go out and become an entrepreneur? And so everybody will try to give you advice and somehow try to hold you back. So how was that for you to, to face, I guess, a lot of resistance or, or conventional thinking? Yeah, what's interesting about this, Agnes, is that um, whenever you think about, uh, there is resistance, and, and it's because when you think about work, any of us going to work, we think about it in, in mostly functional terms of it, um, we put food on the table, we earn money, we make lots of money, we pay our bills, etc. But one of the things that really makes sense to do when you think about work is you're hiring it to do a functional job, which is the food, but you're also hiring it to do an emotional job, which is to allow you to feel like you're contributing, to feel valued, to perhaps make a difference in the world. And so almost always when someone takes a new job, when they leave a job, it's because they it may still be doing the functional piece, but it's stopped doing the emotional piece. And so it's really important to look at that. And so... Um, what I found is that even though my work on Wall Street was doing that functional job, um, I had gotten to the point where I had learned as much as I could learn. I think I was making as much as I could make. Um, I didn't at that point. We'd had reviews and I'd had a banner year in terms of performance metrics, but was getting paid the exact same bonus as everybody else whose metrics were 20% lower than mine. So from an emotional perspective, mm -hmm. it wasn't giving me the rewards that it had been. I wasn't getting those dopamine squirts. And so oftentimes people may look at the functional piece and think that we're out of our mind. But when you combine the functional with the emotional, almost always the equation, add, in fact, I would say it always adds up um, when people make that make that jump from one learning curve to the next. Yeah, absolutely. And, and this is also something we quite often talk about here on, on the Work Life Hub about the reward, the, the dopamine, just as you said. And basically only you can know what it feels like to be in that job, right? It's, it's you can have status, you can have the, the financial reward, um, but if you feel that it's time to move on, and, and that's what also we have, it, it, it's something that runs across all of our, our guests here, is that they, all of them 
either triggered themselves some kind of major change in their lives or it happened to them they were made redundant or they had uh, uh, something happened to them and 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 that's what really triggered um, what what I guess is also in in your book this S curve right is to is to jump onto the next S curve to to do a big leap of of self development and and just embrace that you have to put yourself again into that area of adrenaline where you right. almost have to reinvent yourself right? exactly exactly and just I'm um, quickly on the S curve um, I, I know a lot of your listeners um, are going to be familiar with it but it's it's the it was developed by E M Rogers to help us figure out how quickly an innovation will be adopted. It also helps us understand learning, that at the low, learning and also the psychology of disruption. So at the low end of the curve, you know, that base of the S, you might be working really hard. It looks like you're not gaining any momentum, but in fact you are, and that helps you understand that you needn't get discouraged because you're just at the low end of the curve. And then you put in the time, you move into that tipping point where you accelerate up the sleek, steep back of the curve. And that's when you feel really competent and you start to feel very confident and all your synapses are firing. And then at the top of the curve, things are really easy for you. Um, but it's become automatic and that's, you don't have the dopamine squirts. And so you can start to get bored. And what's interesting, I think, is that your plateau at this point can become a precipice. Sometimes we choose to jump. Sometimes we're made redundant. I think that probably more often than any of us would like to admit, sometimes we're made redundant because we just don't quite have the courage to jump to the new curve ourselves. (laughs) And, And not always. I mean, there's certainly political things that go on, political mashing but I do think that occasionally that happens and so it's that little shove that the universe gives us to go try something new so that we can start experiencing that dopamine again that's that's great and I think that once you um, once you experience that you're going to seek it out over and over again in your life because you know that that when you feel that this this perhaps is what people say when they say you know step outside of your comfort zone or the magic is going to happen outside of the comfort zone is is when when things get really um, exciting. Now I just wanted to ask you something because you um, mentioned uh, in one of your TED talks that I watched you you specifically mentioned the fact that you were not coming from an Ivy League and you were a woman that uh, convention would have had that you wouldn't have those opportunities. And also in some of the case studies or stories that you tell in the book, it's some of them are about very powerful women who, who, who did these changes. And let me pick up there, Agnes, because I think maybe I'll try to anticipate where I think you might be going. So this idea of being a female, of not having an Ivy League degree and one of the things that's interesting is if you go back to the theory of disruption, in its at its essence, it's a, something that's a low end or um, new market opportunity or innovation, which which by definition means that you're playing where no one else is playing. And so one of the things that happens is that because women are sort of any minority group, it tends to be uh, shut out of conventional basic you know networks we actually learn how to play where no one else is playing. And so we're especially equipped to be great disruptors because that's one of the hallmarks of disruption. So it means that you're going to have to have a much steeper trajectory once you start, like you're going to have to work, which means you have to work really, really, really hard. But if you're willing to play where no one else is playing and take on the risk or, or the take on the uncertainty 
that you feel when you take on this sort of playing where no one else is playing or market risk, um, you are positioned and in fact, well suited to be able to be a disruptor and move up that learning curve and eventually upend the industry or more specifically upend your personal career. The point I wanted to make is not a comparison, but drawing parallels between your book and Lean In. And I think that many of the women I speak with, um, Lean In doesn't resonate. And it also doesn't resonate with me because, you know, I come from a school no one's ever heard of. You know, I'm still doubting whether I have some of the opportunities to dream big. But I think that your message has a very, very strong and powerful message for women. And, and one, of course, is your personal story. But the other one is women are, are always good in finding resources when uh, finding solutions where resources are scarce, right? I mean, all the social entrepreneurs, we see this a lot across the developing world, that some of the most innovative, most impactful uh, local solutions come from women who actually disrupt the status quo, especially mm, in very male-dominated yeah. countries. And I know that your, your book um, doesn't have a, a specific uh, gender agenda, but, but I think it does still carry a very strong motivational factor there for women. And I just wanted to acknowledge that. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And, and I agree with you. I mean, again, you just look at the gender gap and, uh, in pay, and you know that women are very accustomed to do very, you know, a lot less with fewer resources. And so, um, so thank you for acknowledging that. And I do absolutely believe that women are very good at, uh, at bootstrapping. And that is certainly a component of being able to, to be disruptive. Mm. And especially you come from, and you are still in the world of finance, which is an incredibly male dominated world. So, so this was, was this, um, your uh, strategy, your personal strategy, you think to, to, to make it in the, in this male dominated world? Of embracing constraints. I mean, absolutely. If you think about, you know, starting on Wall Street as a secretary, you know, that's a constraint, right? I couldn't walk mm. in the front door. I couldn't say I'm here. I went to an Ivy League and I'm, a, you know, I'm a man. Again, this is 25 years ago. Um, yeah. And so my constraint was I just had to get a place. And so I started as a secretary that put me in the pool where I was swimming other people. And then I had the opportunity to be able to move up. So so, yeah, I think there have been lots of instances where I've embraced constraints. But just to be clear, I mean, this is a narrative that I've now been able to construct over years. I don't know. I, I wouldn't like to say that I was so thoughtful that I was thinking completely <laughs> strategically about all of this as I went along. I think oftentimes we look at our lives and we see patterns and then we, we construct narratives to help us explain those explain those patterns. Yeah, but I think that um, it, it, it is really a strategy and you outlined that very clearly with some very practical key exercises and, and, and lines of thought. It can be a great strategy for, for people, anyone, uh, to break the mold. Yeah, to try absolutely. to craft their own successful and fulfilling lives and craft their own careers. And that's what we're all about here at the Work Life Hub is looking at, as you said, all those constraints, all these very strict workplace norms and and also expectations that that are on you because from your family, from society and 
And as just as Eric Ries said, in, in an uncertain future, nobody has the recipe for success anymore. So coming to your book, uh, Whitney, maybe if you would like to give us a couple of these key points that, that you, you want to share with the audiences of how they can get started. And then I would like to also ask you afterwards, or, or you can maybe weave in between some of perhaps the most surprising stories or, or findings that you had in the process of, of writing this book of, of these key disruption or, or surprising disruptions that worked for people. All right, so um, maybe what I'll do is I'll start on the topic that we were just having. We're, we were talking about embracing constraints. And I think one of the findings for me that was especially powerful on this is that I, I found this study um, that was done by Entrepreneur Magazine about a decade ago, 2007, and they compiled this list of the 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. And that was interesting, but what really caught my attention was how these companies had actually funded their growth. Um, so only 28% had access to bank loans, um, only 18% had access to equity, only 4%. 4% had actual access to venture capital. And, um, and so what we know from that is that at least 50% and as much as 72% of these companies had bootstrapped. They had just built their business with the cash that was available to them or that they were generating from, from the revenue and the profits of the business. And oh, by the way, 61% of these companies were profitable within the first year. And so the surprising conclusion for me was the question, or I had to ask myself the question, were these companies successful in spite of or because of their constraints? And so for me, I think, you know, I, I continually mm -hmm. think of constraints as something that are like boxing me in. And yet when I discovered this idea, this piece of research and then the story around skateboarders and how skateboarders are really quick learners because they receive lots of useful feedback very, very quickly, it began to really make me think, okay, if we want to improve, we need to impose constraints because when we impose constraints, we get feedback, a lot of feedback really, really quickly. And so for me, that was one of those surprising findings of, mm. all right, next time I feel constrained, understand that every time I bump up against a constraint, I'm getting information. And the more information I have, the more quickly I can improve. And certainly mm. that does dovetail beautifully with the lean startup methodology. But that was one of the sort of surprising ahas for me. Currently in the media, when we, you know, if, if you tuned in into the startup world, into um, uh, especially tech startups, it almost seems like everybody, you know, is looking for the next unicorn. And, and that we're just, uh, there's all these pitching going on and all these venture capitalists. So, so uh, I'm also personally very, very surprised uh, by this finding because we, we get from the media, I guess, a little bit of a distorted uh, version or vision of success. And that is uh, have a quick mm -hmm. idea, get a huge amounts of cash invested quickly, and then you will become the next Facebook. And, and I think that there isn't a lot of storytelling about a lot of these companies that you mentioned who really have iterated and iterated and pivoted and, and tried to disrupt a market, tried to offer a new service, a new product. And that's how they figured out laboriously how, uh, how to succeed and how to make money. 
versus uh, what seems to be this quick fix economy that I that you know quickly have this fantastic mock-up of your brilliant idea pitch to a number of uh, investors get some quick cash and then you will just grow right right exactly I mean it's the Hollywood version of the story and and there certainly are instances where that happens but but to to your point I think when we use that, that paradigm um, and measure the success of our business against that paradigm, we do ourselves a huge disservice. Um, and recognizing that that is much closer to fiction than it is to fact, and that the actual fact is is that you may be at the you know low end of a curve trying to figure out what business model works and iterating and iterating and iterating um, for quite a long time until you you get the right fit. Um, so, so that's, and, and so th- that's what this book is designed to do is to help people in a very practical way, figure out when you jump to a new curve, what curve you should jump to and how you figure out if it's the right curve. And once you do figure that out, how to scale that curve, um, understanding that for most of us, and again, if you read the book, you'll find that most of the stories that I include are people who are everyday sorts of people mm. so that we all can see ourselves in those individuals and and believe really believe that these frameworks do apply to us as we're trying to go through our own uh, personal and and professional iterations and and I again I just wanted to acknowledge that I think this is such a key uh, value in your work because I oftentimes when we look for inspirational quotes or inspirational people or career paths that we could kind of emulate and follow uh, some of the people have already had you know a very very different um, postcode <laughs> when they were born and and opportunities and it's very dif- difficult I guess to compete with some of those opportunities now coming before our last question uh, may I just ask you to tell our listeners if they would like to get in touch with you or, or follow you where they can do that Oh, yes, absolutely. And thank you for asking. My website is WhitneyJohnson.com. So just W-H-I-T-N-E-Y-J-O-H-N-S-O-N.com. Um, you can always email me at Whitney at WhitneyJohnson.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Johnson Whitney. Coming to the last question that we always have here on the Work Life Podcast and that we ask our guests, if you could, Whitney, give one advice or the first advice to a CEO to encourage his or her team, or anybody who would like to make this dramatic jump in their career, who would like to disrupt themselves, Mm -hmm. what would be the first thing that they would need to do? I don't know if this is the first thing, but I think it's one of the most important things and it's an easy way to get started, which would be um, as a CEO and or as a team leader to figure out and identify what thing each person on your team does uniquely well, like uniquely well, what their superpower is. And like, you, you know it because you can, if, you, if anybody said to you, what do you think of this person, this person, this person, you can identify it really quickly. And then I would ask yourself, is this person using this superpower in their current role? And if they're not using that superpower in their current role, then figure out a way to move them around so that they are using that superpower because one of the things I've discovered, just the other day I was at a major Fortune 100 company and I asked this major division, I said, how many of you are playing to your strengths at work? And only 5% raised their hand. If you want to unleash 
this tremendous wave of innovation inside of your company to move up the current learning curve and be prepared to jump to your next curve. Identify the strengths of the people who work for you, the strengths that make them unique, and make sure that they're, in fact, using them in their current role. This is beautiful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And, and I think when you just, the way you formulate their superpower, it already gives such a message of, of uh, support and, and servant leadership and, and really um, creating the framework where people just can give their best and, and drive on their dopamine. Yeah. I uh, also uh, heard you say in one of your interviews, um, throw down your pom-poms and get in the game. <laughs> and I just wanted to also repeat that here on the podcast because I think that that, that can be something people can write on their walls and, and look at it and say, okay, now I need to disrupt myself. I love that. Thank you for reminding us of that. I hadn't thought about that for a, a bit. So thanks. So thank you so much, Whitney. I really appreciate it that you took the time uh, from your busy schedule to be on the podcast. And we will be, of course, looking forward if people are, are sending in their remarks and their reactions to your book and the podcast. Thank you so much and wish you all the best in the future. Thank you. 